If you will, open to me in your Bibles to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 will be the psalm that we look at together this morning as we continue to work through book one of the book of Psalms. Unlike many of the other psalms that we have seen before, this one is not primarily directed to the Lord. It is primarily directed to people like you and me. David is speaking, counseling, providing wisdom to people. People who are under his leadership as king, people who are in his own family, like his children. And so we will heed the words of David this morning that is directed to people like you and me. This is a, a longer psalm. Not going to be able to cover everything, obviously. But I do want to begin by reading the whole psalm together to help us to get a feel for the kinds of themes that are here. So Psalm 37 is a psalm of David. And David is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, beginning in verse 1, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. 
The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by Him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and His tongue speaks justice. The law of His God is in His heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put Him to death. The Lord will not abandon Him to His power or let Him be condemned when He is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep His way and He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, at times we can be overwhelmed by the evil that surrounds us. We see evil men prospering. We see the wicked ruling in governments and in nations. We see the corrupt being exalted. And we see the humble being torn down. 
We see that which is evil being praised. And those who do good and proclaim good and righteousness being cast aside. And at times, Lord, it can, it can drive us almost to despair, wondering how long will this continue? How long will the wicked prosper? And it can drive us, even as the psalm warns about, to envy, to envy the prosperity that the wicked possess. And yet Your Word teaches us to not look solely at what our eyes can see right in front of us, but to look at Your promises and to know and to understand the things that are to come. This world is passing away and the wicked along with it. And You call us to place our greatest hopes and trust in the Lord and in the promises that have been secured by our King. And so I pray, Lord, for this morning that as we heed the instructions of this psalm, as we heed the wisdom that David has prophetically given to us, Pray that it would help us to live lives in a fallen world in faithfulness to You, fixing our eyes upon the inheritance that is secured for us by Christ. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we come to a psalm that in many ways serves as a kind of template for the book of Proverbs. It is a wisdom psalm, just like the book of Proverbs, and it provides much practical wisdom in how to live in light of certain realities and challenges that one faces in the world. In fact, passages from this very psalm are repeated by Solomon throughout the book of Proverbs, some of which we read from earlier. The wisdom that Solomon gained and wrote down was wisdom that came especially from his father David, which is partly why we are told in 1 Kings chapter 3 that Solomon walked in the statutes of his father David. And it also makes you wonder if Solomon's prayer to the Lord when he became king, that the Lord would grant him wisdom to rule over his people, if it was not essentially just a prayer, Lord, make me more like my father. Because again, all of the wisdom that we find throughout Proverbs is in some place alluded to or referenced throughout the book of Psalms. The wisdom that Solomon recorded for his own children and for the people of Israel was wisdom that came first from the pen 
of David and which we have before us this morning. Now, like much of Proverbs, this psalm is not arranged with a certain kind of, if you will, logical flow of thought in mind. Just like other psalms that we've already seen before, this psalm is arranged as an acrostic, following the order of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet. But unlike some of the other psalms that we've looked at, it is every other line that follows this pattern. So that verse 1 begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Then verse 3 begins with the second. And then verse 5 begins with the third and so on and so forth. Additionally, just like much of Proverbs, there is a specific issue that is being addressed. An instruction is being given about how to live in light of that issue. And in the case of this psalm, the main issue, the main problem that is being addressed is the problem of the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 7, for example, speaks of the wicked as prospering in their way. Verse 16 speaks of the abundance that the wicked has. Verse 33 speaks of the power that the wicked have to put the righteous to death. Verse 35 describes the wicked and ruthless man as a lush green tree, who of course eventually fades, but nevertheless, there is a time at which he puts his branches out and seems to be mighty. And the righteous, of course, are warned not to be envious because of the abundance that the wicked has. All throughout this psalm, the consistent problem that is being addressed is the reality of evil men prospering in the world. We live, even now, in a world much like David's own world. It is fallen. It is corrupt. It is sinful and evil. It is a world where sinful men govern in sinful ways. Or they don't govern at all because they don't know what's going on. It is a world where sin dominates, where deceitfulness is rewarded, where oppression is exalted, where confusion is proclaimed, and where what is good, truly good, is despised among men. And this, of course, is not only present within the broader world out there, the world of business, the world of law, the world of politics, the world of education, but this is even present within the broader 
Christian world. You have so-called preachers like your Joel Osteens of the world, your Kenneth Copelands, Stephen Furtick, T.D. Jakes, Mike Todd. All of them have amassed great riches and wealth following this peddling of a false gospel and taking advantage of people's most base desires to be wealthy and successful. They have prospered in the messages they have proclaimed. The false teachers, in other words, appear to be winning the day. And yet, even as all of these things are true, it is still also true that the Lord reigns and He is sovereign over all. And so this, of course, raises the questions. Why is this happening? Will this go on forever? What am I to do? And how am I to live in a world like this? And it is the concern of this psalm and the concern of David to speak to us as a father to his children and to instruct us in the ways of living wisely in a world where the wicked prosper. So this morning, that is what we will give our attention to. Heeding the instructions of wise living in a fallen world. Now, the psalm, of course, has 40 verses. And so we can't look at all of them in detail. But I think what we can do is to divide it into two main emphases. One having to do with how we are to live, and the other having to do with why we can live that way. And this is basically how all of the Psalms throughout Psalm 37 are divided. You have a statement that is made, like what is found in verse 1. Be not envious of the wicked, of evildoers. And then this is followed by an explanation for why you can live that way. We have commands and instructions for wise living that are given. And then this is followed with an explanation or a ground for those commands. And so we'll approach the psalm as a whole with this division in mind. How to live and why we can live that way. And when we consider the matter of how to live, there are at least three main instructions that are given and which are stated in a variety of ways and in different places throughout the psalm. And the first instruction we're given here heads the psalm. David instructs us to be not angry or envious of the wicked. Again, verse 1 says, fret not yourself because 
of evildoers. And the word here for fret not is often the word that is used for having a burning anger. So that here the idea is that a person becomes so frustrated, so annoyed, so grieved, so vexed that they become angry over what they're seeing. David says, do not anger yourself because of evildoers and be not envious of wrongdoers. And similarly, he says down in verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. It will lead you, in other words, to do evil yourself. To sin. Even if you feel justified because the wicked are prospering. You yourself will stumble into sin. Even if it is a sin of a different kind. Even if you're not committing the same exact sin you're committing out there, you'll still stumble into sin. We'll look into the reasons why this and and other commands are given later, but at the moment, it is simply worth recognizing and heeding the warning that David gives. What he is speaking to is the kind of anger that is settled and fixed and immovable. It simmers. It grows. It's a frustration that gets hotter and hotter. It is very much like boiling water. It begins and it's, it's imp- it, you can't perceive it. You can't see that there is a hotness under the surface. And yet, it continues and it grows. And as it grows, it becomes a simmer until eventually it boils over. We are not talking here about the kind of anger that one can have in the moment when you see some great injustice being committed. If you were out, for example, walking downtown and then you saw someone randomly being assaulted, it would be cowardice and negligence if you weren't moved by anger to intervene on their behalf. This is not what David is speaking about. He is speaking about a determined, settled anger. And in the context, an anger that moves further into bearing the fruit of jealousy and envy. You want what the wicked have. You are furious because they have things that you want whether that is material prosperity, whether that is peace, whether that is glory and honor. You want their ease. 
Again, if we go back to thinking for a moment about our various modern-day false teachers, it would be like a preacher thinking to himself, why can't I have that ministry? Look at all of the thousands of people that they're reaching and preaching to. Why can't I have that large church and that mega influence? Why can't I have that name and recognition? It's sinful because it leads your mind away from fidelity to the Word of God and it feeds you lies about who you are and who God is. As a preacher, for example, you are nothing more than a sower of seeds. Or maybe another is one who waters those seeds. But it is God who gives the growth. You are a servant, not the Master. And so it is in the Master's hands to determine when the seed grows, when the fruit is born. And when you start looking at the prosperity of the wicked, your mind and your heart is driven away from who you actually are in Christ and what you've been called to do. David gives this important warning first. Be not angry and be not envious. But a second important command he gives throughout the psalm is the command to trust in the Lord. To trust in the Lord. And this trust has several aspects to it. One aspect is just the very meaning of the word trust. Right? You believe in the words that someone has said. The Lord has spoken. He has given His commands. He has made promises. And the psalm just tells us, believe Him. Believe in His Word. Believe in His commands. Believe in His promises. Verse 3 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Don't worry about the wicked. Don't worry about their prosperity. That doesn't concern you. You trust in the Lord. But another aspect of this trust involves delight. When you trust in the Lord, you are to delight in Him. You make Him your greatest desire. It is He who is to be your highest good. Verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. And then comes a promise. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Now to be clear, this is not a promise to give you all of your carnal 
desires. This does not mean, as the modern prosperity preacher would say, that if you delight in the Lord even more and you love Him more, then He will bless you with that job promotion. He will bless you with a brand new car. He will bless you with a bigger house or some other material gain. That has nothing to do with this verse. In fact, it is in direct contradiction to it. Because the whole psalm is about the wicked amassing for themselves all of that gain and all of that power. The assumption is that the desires of the heart or the petitions, the requests, the prayers will be shaped by delighting in the Lord. Which means that they are desires that are all in accordance with His Word and promises. He will give us more of Himself if we ask. He will give us more wisdom if we ask. He will give us more holiness, more grace, more strength to walk in faithfulness if we ask. We trust in the Lord for these things. But still a third aspect of trust involves waiting. Waiting. Verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. And verse 34 towards the end of the psalm says, Wait for the Lord and keep His way. We are to wait for the Lord and this especially is a waiting which concerns the fulfillment of His Word and His promises. Had you been, for an example, an Israelite living in the land of Egypt just a few generations after Joseph and his brothers had arrived there at the end of the book of Genesis, waiting on the Lord would have meant that in some 300 to 350 years, long after you're dead and gone, the Lord would fulfill His promise to bring Israel into the land of Canaan. Had you been an Israelite living during the days of Jeremiah, waiting on the Lord, would have meant that you were called to live faithfully in exile in the land of Babylon. And that in 70 years, perhaps also after you are dead and gone, the Lord would fulfill His promise to bring Israel back to the land of Canaan. And similarly, for the believer, Waiting on the Lord means that we must live faithfully in the time and the place that God has ordained for us while we await the fulfillment of His promises to bring justice against all wickedness and to grant 
the inheritance to His people. We will look at some of these promises some more in a moment, but understand that trust in the Lord involves waiting for Him to carry out His Word. And that may not happen within our specific generation. You continue to wait on Him until you breathe your last breath. And do we even see, right? Do we not? When you get to the book of Revelation and there are saints in heaven still waiting on the Lord. How long, O Lord, are they crying out before Him? The waiting continues until the Lord acts and carries out His Word. We trust Him now. We trust Him for all eternity knowing that at His appointed time, at the right time, He will fulfill His Word. So there is here a general command that is given throughout the psalm not to envy the wicked. There is a command to trust in the Lord. And then a third command we can note is the command to do good to do good. This is seen in a verse like verse 3 where it says, trust in the Lord and do good. And like the previous command, there are several aspects to this. First of all, you don't define good however you please. Good is not something that's subjective. Whatever we want it to be. What is good must be defined by the Word of God. And so it is for this this reason that David says in verses 30 to 31 that the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. This is a call, in other words, to be that Psalm 1 blessed man who meditates on the law of the Lord, the Word of God, day and night. One cannot walk faithfully. One cannot do good if he does not know what good is. And you know what good is by what God has revealed for us His Word. And as we look to His Word, one of the other aspects that we find of doing good that is even mentioned in this psalm is that of speaking truthfully. Having true speech. Verse 30 again. The tongue of the wise speaks justice. It speaks mishpat. The the word that refers to the commandments, the, the statutes of the law of God. The righteous man speaks in accordance with the Word of God. He doesn't reject it. 
He doesn't redefine it or update it to fit with the modern times. He doesn't look at the Bible and say, well, that was just a book for ancient people long ago. And we live in different times. So we need to update it now. He never says that. Why? Because he understands that whether you live today or 2,000 or 5,000 years ago, human nature does not change. The sin of 5,000 years ago is still the sin of today. And as much as God's Word reveals what is true and right and good and evil in the past, He reveals it still today through His eternal Word. And the righteous man recognizes that this Word comes from the mouth of God. And therefore, when He gives counsel, when He gives insight, when He speaks, He aims to speak according to the Word of God. Now, having said that, this sounds way easier than it actually is. Everyone loves to hear the counsel of the Word, particularly in the Christian world. Everyone loves to hear the Word of God until it confronts them about their own sin. And then, when all of the cliches are stripped away, and when the bumper sticker Bible verses are not being used, then, when a man or a woman speaks to you as Nathan the prophet did to David and says, you are the man, well, then you really understand. Then you come to know who the true sheep are from the goats. There are people who pretend to love the Word and to exalt it high until the Word confronts them. But brothers and sisters, we all ought to be like David who could and who desired to receive rebukes from the Word. You'll remember what we read earlier from Psalm 141 where David says, let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness to me. When the righteous, when the wise rebukes me, it's like oil on my head. It's an anointing. It brings me more in line with the will of God. It helps me to understand His Word and to live according to it. Doing good requires speaking truthfully to one another and receiving true words from one another. Now, there is obviously more that could be said, no doubt, but for the sake of time, allow me to move on to a couple of the reasons why David says the righteous who trust in the Lord can and should live like this. Live faithfully in the midst of a crooked world. 
And we can summarize these two reasons as two promises that are given to the Lord's people. And the first promise that we find throughout the psalm is the promise that the wicked who seem, who appear to be prospering forever, will inevitably perish. Prosperity shall not go beyond the short time that the Lord gives them to live. All throughout the psalm, David repeatedly reminds us that the wicked who carries out evil devices in verse 7, or the wicked in verse 12 who plots against the righteous, or the wicked in verse 14 who bring down the poor and needy and who slay, who kill those whose way is upright. They're murdering people. They're murdering God's people. The wicked in verse 20 who are enemies of the Lord. All those who are in their sin and who are steeped in their rebellion against the Lord and by being steeped in it cause such devastation on the earth. All of those wicked throughout the psalm, David says, they will perish. And they will be judged by the Lord. And one of the things that he says about this as well, which requires us to have an eternal perspective of all things, is that their destruction will come swiftly and soon. Why should we not be envious of evildoers? Verse 3, because they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Or verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, though you look carefully at where he dwells, he will not be there. Now this language here of imminence, of soon, shortly, a little while, this is from the perspective of eternity. David here is not saying that the wicked will be no more in his day, or even necessarily within the next generation. It is language that throughout the psalm is in direct contrast with what is eternal. The forever heritage of the people of God. Of the righteous. Verse 18, for example. Unlike the wicked who will fade like the grass or who will vanish like smoke in verse 20, the heritage of the blameless will remain forever. Or in verse 11, in contrast to the wicked who will no longer have a place to live, the meek shall inherit the land. Or in verse 
6.29, in contrast to the wicked whose children shall be cut off. Meaning their lineage will come to an end. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Or similarly, in verse 37, in contrast with the wicked who have no future, the man of peace, it says, for him there is a future. And so we might say here that this soon language is an eschatological soon. It is soon relative to what is forever, what is eternal, what lasts from this day forevermore. And David is imploring us not to grow jealous over the prosperity of the wicked because it is nothing more than smoke. It may look real. It may look substantive and long-lasting and thick. But as soon as the wind blows, it will all vanish away. There is nothing true about it. There's nothing true about it because it is rooted and grounded in the world that is passing away. It is rooted in the ground that is cursed. But when the world is redeemed, and when the curse is lifted, and the ground is blessed, the wicked will have no inheritance in that blessed world. And David even appears to suggest that these things will happen simultaneously. That the inheritance of the righteous, that the inheritance that they are to receive comes when the wicked are no more. When they are gone from the land. He says in verse 34, for example, wait for the Lord and keep His way and He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. They are prospering now. They have land now. They have a place now. They have power now. But you are to wait for the Lord because when the Lord cuts them off, then shall come your inheritance. The believer, in other words, must have eternity in mind. He must have the day of judgment in mind. Because it is then that the Lord brings an end to the wicked. Verses 12-13 to say, for example, that the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. We must see, in other words, with the eyes of the Lord. 
and see what He is bringing in the day of recompense and vengeance. It is at that time that the prosperity of the wicked will come to a grinding halt and their day will fade away forever like the grass of the field. Their glory will be like a flower that bloomed and then withered away with the change of the season. But with this day comes not only the judgment of the Lord against the wicked, but also the reward for His people. The inheritance. The land. And this is the second promise that we'll look at and we'll conclude with. One of the central points that is brought out throughout the psalm is that what the wicked gained or tried to gain by sin, the righteous will inherit from the Lord. The place of the wicked will be stripped away. And as verse 11 says again, the meek shall inherit the land. And this is a promise that Jesus Himself quotes and applies to His disciples on the Sermon on the Mount when He taught them the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, He said in Matthew 5, for they shall inherit the earth. And this promise, of course, comes with a plethora of other promises within the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, the meek are, of course, identified likewise as those who are poor in spirit or as those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and more. And to such as these, Jesus says, not only comes the inheritance of the earth, but to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted, He says. They shall be satisfied, He says. They shall see God face to face. Their reward is great in heaven, He says. The Lord Himself speaks of these blessings as eschatological blessings. Blessings that last. Blessings that are eternal forever. Much like the psalm. What God has promised to give to His people is a world that lasts. An inheritance that endures forever. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that this very inheritance is presently kept in heaven, but that it is also imperishable and undefiled and unfading. All of the things that the wicked enjoy now, these are things that are perishable. Things that are defiled. Things that are fading away. They may prosper in the moment, but what the psalm is teaching us is that there's nothing to be envious of 
because there's nothing that they have that will last forever. Again, it's like smoke that fades with the wind. When they die, there is a loss of everything. They lose what they had on earth. They lose their very souls. They are judged. And at the final judgment, they will be cast out forever. As Jesus says of the rich man in Luke 16, he received his good things now. But the poor man, Lazarus, he received his reward in heaven where he awaits even greater things to come. And likewise, the Lord's people may suffer now. They may be persecuted. They may be reviled. They may be hated. They may be poor, grieved, sorrowful. But as they persevere and continue in, to wait for the Lord, they will be rewarded in heaven and ultimately, when the day of judgment comes, rewarded in the resurrection and in the new creation. They shall inherit the earth. And so we wait patiently. We do not envy the wicked. We do not covet the world. We trust in the Lord. We live our lives faithfully unto Him. We work day by day with our own hands. We raise our children. We proclaim the Gospel. We make disciples. We worship together. And we wait. And we wait until He calls us to Himself or until He returns. And then, as He promises, we shall receive our reward forever. We shall receive a glory that is fixed and unfading. We will not be given but we will be given the inheritance of the eternal kingdom dwelling with God forever and ever. And so be not envious, brothers and sisters, but wait on the Lord, trust in Him, and do good. Let's conclude together with a word of prayer. Father, those who have their hopes fixed in this present world will find those hopes destroyed. For You are making all things new. And You are lifting the curse from the very ground. And You are 
preparing for us a great day of an inheritance and of a resurrection to come. It is to these things that our heart longs for. It is to these things that we covet and desire greatly. So I pray, Lord, that we would always be looking to the great forever heritage that you have prepared for us and not be led away in our hearts, not be envious of what the wicked may have, what prosperity may come. Give us the eyes of the Lord to see all of history in its grand conclusion. A day that is to come where we dwell in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.